Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. I'm so excited for this conversation. I had the opportunity to sit down with Stephen Goldner, the founder of Pure Green, a vertically integrated cannabis company here in Michigan. Some of you all might be familiar with Pure Green as their water-soluble THC tablets are currently sold in Michigan provisioning centers. Stephen is a fascinating guy with a very interesting background. In fact, he is credited with creating the first liquid dose of methadone over 45 years ago. Stephen spent many years working with the FDA the NIH, and even the UN in the healthcare regulatory field. I'm excited for you guys to get to know Stephen better, hear more about Pure Green's story, and learn about some of the products that Pure Green is creating and their very exciting medical applications. So yeah. we're going to tell lots of stories, and yes, we the sun are. will go down on us. No, that's all right. I think we should start with what is Pure Green's story and how you came to be based in Michigan. Okay, sure. So what is Pure Green? Really, it's two companies in one. Pure Green is a medical cannabis company, like a pharmaceutical company, and it's also a cannabis consumer products company. So we really straddle both sides of cannabis. I founded it and have built it that way because of my experience as both an inventor of drugs and of having worked at a great uh, consumer products company who's figured out how to spread consumer products to help people all over the world. Uh, we wanted to make sure that it would be both safe and easy for people to be able to pick out wonderful cannabis products to use for themselves. Uh, why I did it here in Michigan was, well, I came to Michigan 25 years ago to get some drugs approved for a pharmaceutical company, and I stayed here to invent some other new companies and hire a bunch of people to work in them. When you originally moved to Michigan, was it for family or because you wanted that initial company to be based here? Just out of curiosity. I really moved to Michigan because there was a drug company here who had some great ideas for new products and they weren't sure how to get them approved at FDA. So I moved to Southern Michigan from Southern California. Oh, wow. And I have loved living here. The people are great. And uh, the weather's not exactly what it is in Southern California. <laughs> but the good news is I work indoors. And so that's the truth. It's worked out great. For you can me. stay in temperature controlled environments. <laughs> yes, I've been very lucky that way. So how? Why cannabis? Because you started off as someone who one of the sort of co-founders, writer, co-inventors, co-creators of liquid methadone, right. and now you're in the cannabis industry, which is an interesting transition. So what motivated you to look at cannabis? I've always been attracted to working with the safest possible drugs. The whole idea is always to do no harm to people, but find a way to help them. And cannabis is probably the safest plant that produces dozens of different molecules that can be used for so many conditions and different diseases. So that's why it's really because it combines being effective with safe and I got into this particular specifically because I was the FDA advisor to the National Institutes of Health, uh, 
to advise NIH on how to go about getting approvals at, at FDA. And along the way, I was asked to go to the United Nations in order to talk about the safety of different drugs, particularly because I developed this drug methadone 45 years ago. So while I was there at the UN talking to people about how to change the drug policy, I was able to talk to them about how also cannabis could help to cure PTSD and get people off of opioids. So what is it that made you aware that cannabis was safe? Because that's not a widely accepted concept quite yet, right? That, that cannabis right. is safe, that it has medical value. It's something we're still trying to prove, I guess, um, to ourselves, to consumers, to governments. Yes. How were you aware of this so early on? Back in, like so many older people who say, sure, I experimented with smoking pot in college or high school or something like that. Yeah, I did too. Uh, however, I went on to be a medical scientist and didn't keep smoking it because it really interfered in my being able to get my work done. But when I was around 27 or 28, I met a young man who had come back from war in Vietnam. Like so many guys that I knew, my methadone helped them to get off of heroin addiction. But this guy, my buddy John, he wasn't addicted in any way, but he had PTSD so badly that it was ruining his life. He couldn't hold a job. He, his girlfriends would come and go because John was pretty much crazy and unpredictable. And so I would go to his house. He was getting pills from the VA and they would just make him even crazier. Or he would drink to try and manage his symptoms. And when I showed up at his house, he would be standing with a loaded rifle and a wicked looking bayonet because all he knew to do was to protect. But if he had gotten pot, marijuana, and smoked it, there'd be no gun and no knife and he'd be laughing and smiling and say, did I bring the pepperoni pizza? And we would have a great evening of me being able to help care for him. So I learned at this early age, just by looking at him, to see here was someone with a real medical condition that marijuana really helped and he could manage his own symptoms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's interesting. So talk to me a little bit about the concept of pure green and kind of what sets it apart from other products that are out there currently. We have real science on our side. Truthfully, everyone in the cannabis field has real science on their side. We just have to figure out how to deploy the tools, and I've done it with hundreds of other drugs, so sort of I'm the jockey that's ridden a whole bunch of other horses, so I know how to do this. So what sets Pure Green aside is that we figured out how to make the cannabis molecules, THC and CBD and CBN, water-soluble, then how to put them into easy-to-use tablets so that anyone could use them because the body is pretty good taking in water. It doesn't like to take in oil. You know, you can't drink 30-weight oil and feel better about it. 
So that's what really sets Pure Green aside, was our science where the tablets act so quickly, delivering the molecules exactly where they need to be, and even on into our vape cartridges and our gummies, all of them benefit from using real science. Uh, we don't use any additives or diluents. Everything is terrifically analyzed to make sure it's pure and clean. I think that sets us aside. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you very first started off here in Michigan, did you start with the processor license? That's exactly right. I, uh, having a processor license is like being, having a license to be a drug company. Right, it's like a lab. It's just like being a lab. And I used up, I actually used my own retirement money. I have put myself on the line. And yeah, I'm only 71 years old, so yeah, I can go on working for another 30, 40 years, but that was my retirement money. And I used it to build the facility and buy the equipment and hire the people and pay for all the licenses just so I could open the doors and start shipping these products. And now you've moved into, you have cultivation licenses and you're doing uh, the provisioning centers as well. Yes. So along after that, I was able to get half a dozen more licenses for uh, growing cannabis, and we're growing about 5,500 plants right now. We're in the midst of opening uh, three retail stores, and we have pop-up stores within a dozen others. So that's allowed us to become vertically integrated as we make and sell uh, uh, cannabis products within Michigan and also allowed us to have the money to go do the research. Absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were one of the first processors to get licensed here in the state. Yes. Yes. I actually have license 0000002 and license 01 was never issued. So. Well, congratulations. <laughs> that is a huge feat in and of itself, I'm sure. Yes. And that's yeah. when they had the board reviewing the applications, which was a much yeah. more arduous process. Yes, it was. And we got through the board. I have a pretty good security record of having worked for NIH and FDA and all of these other alphabets. Uh, so it's pretty good. Plus, um, they, they actually saw that it was my retirement money. They saw that I took it out of a bank account and uh, it allowed us to rush to be able to open the doors and hire people and it's still been a very tricky difficult business so thankfully i have a lot of people just phenomenal people who have come work here and help me really appreciate them yeah that's amazing talk about uh, having utmost confidence in yourself right to take your own retirement to start a business i think that speaks volumes lots of people want other people's money to make that gamble well, yes, and I'd be very happy to use other people's money. Um, but I noticed that always comes with a very high cost. Mm -hmm. And I've watched this over and over again. Um, and I figured I could be truer to my own mission that this fellow, John, who, who actually made me vow to cure PTSD. John died about seven years ago of cirrhosis of the liver because he drank so much to manage his symptoms. So 
and he made me vow to cure PTSD, and I'm going to do that. And we are really just, it feels like months away from doing that now, after 45 years. So this is a, a great moment, and I'm sure my bank account would be happy to have some of the money back. <laughs> so talk to me about what you think the future of the cannabis industry holds here in Michigan. What do you think these next five years are going to look like? Well, these are going to be incredibly exciting five years here in Michigan and in all other states around it. Instead of there being 300,000 people in Michigan with medical marijuana cards, more than 2 million people out of the 10 million adults we have are going to begin taking cannabis and using it regularly. That's about the ratio we see in every state. So those people will learn how to dose themselves. Yes, you can use it recreationally. So sorry for alcohol, but the use of alcohol will decrease, mm -hmm. which means the amount of drunk drivers will go down, and that's great. The amount of bar fights will go down because people don't smoke marijuana and then go start fights. It will be wonderful in that sense. So overall, the Michigan society will gain terrifically. Individuals will learn how to use it to cure their own um, medical issues. People will sleep better. They'll have less pain. Um, they'll have less anxiety. So in some cases, people have to choose between spending money on medication or food. Now they can just use a small amount of marijuana, reduce their anxiety, feel better about their life, and still have money left over for food. Absolutely. And, and hopefully not have all these other side effects that some of this prescription drugs yes. creates. And then you need another medicine or something else to manage, you know, the side effect of. Right. We've We've sold more than 100, 150,000 tablets of what we call pure sleep. And not one person has said that they've had uh, a sleepy feeling the next day or any side effects. In fact, so many people call in or write or email and text and say, wow, I had the best night's sleep ever. I have no side effects. This is fabulous. Right. Right, and there's not much else out there in the market that does that. So, or if anything else on the market besides white cannabis, right. THC, CBD, some of these cannabinoids. So, are you seeing Michigan, the Michigan cannabis industry, have an impact on any other industries in Michigan? Well, yes, certainly retail stores opening mm -hmm. um, certainly has an impact everywhere in the towns that they open. I've been to some small towns uh, in Michigan where they may have one cannabis dispensary and seen when they have um, like a cannabis show day, four or 5,000 people come into town. It's like a little festival. The town benefits from it. Restaurants fill up with people. It's like a ca lovely carnival atmosphere. So small towns can profit from this in many other ways, as well as cities just getting tax revenue. Um, 
what you find is around every cannabis dispensary, sellers, the illegal or black market sellers of other drugs don't tend to sell around cannabis dispensaries. So it's actually almost like having an informal police force. It makes the area safer. Absolutely. And that's just terrific. Also for the impact, um, when if you reduce drunk driving, you reduce accidents, you reduce trauma to families, hospital visits, ambulance runs, life flight, need for policemen, and all the rest. It's a true net gain for every society. Yes, absolutely. On that note, I have kind of a, a non-sequitur, uh, I guess they call it, is I noticed there's a focus on being able to test if you are high while you're driving. There's a focus. There's a yes. big conversation about this in the industry, and I think it's because cannabis gets compared to alcohol and, like, the recreational aspect. And you've talked a little bit now about how, you know, having the option of cannabis reduces drunk driving and things of that nature. So in, in your, I guess, opinion, do you think this is something we should be worried about as a society, all these people on cannabis driving? Have we ever had this conversation around opioids as a society? That's the most wonderful question. I've never heard anyone else say, so have we had this conversation about opioids that the pharmaceutical industry has been selling and prescribing and the medical industry has been giving to millions of patients? And the answer is no, we have not. And there are plenty of other pharmaceuticals that have an impact on people's awareness. It's not enough to just say, don't take this because you may be drowsy. There are so many people driving under the influence of pharmaceutical drugs. So we've never had this conversation. So raising it now is just a complete red herring. Yes. And at the same time though, People who get really stoned and really wasted do lose track of time and can lose track of where they are. And you don't want people falling asleep behind the wheel of a car. Even if the car can drive itself, and not many can, you don't want that to happen. So we have to be able to tell people to use products responsibly, and that's that's what's really important, aside from all the testing, because police know how to be able to find a car when somebody is stoned and driving. It's when the speed limit says 55 and the car is going 25. <laughs> that person is stoned and they should be pulled over. Um, not that much testing needs to be done because they should be driving responsibly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the conversation frustrates me for that reason, that we've never had yes. it in the context of opioids. So it frustrates me when it comes up. I mean, it's, it's just interesting. Yes. Um, so what do you think are some of the challenges or barriers to growth here in the Michigan cannabis market? Some of the, the barriers to growth are because of the way the regulations went about being implemented at first. The regulatory group Lara, that was in charge of giving out the licenses for the first year, had 
sort of institutional problems with being able to issue licenses quickly enough. So that stifled the industry from growing and made it incredibly expensive. Thankfully, the new governor has figured out how to change that and, and the LARA organization has been recast and those obstacles have gone away and licenses are going out much more quickly. So that's helpful. But meanwhile, it's still incredibly expensive to start up businesses. That's had an unfortunate impact on people who have worked in this industry when it was illegal for so many years, who just don't have the money to be able to compete anymore. Hopefully over time, they'll be able to to come back in. So that's the first part of it growing. Also, the real impediment, even to those who had plenty of money, frankly, this is so incredibly expensive. There hasn't been access to capital. There hasn't been access to banking, insurance, accountants, all the people you need to actually run a uh, a business mm -hmm. in order to just pay your taxes and pay payroll and all the rest of that. So that's been real impediments. Almost all of that has changed now, which is wonderful. Um, we have regular accounting, regular banking, all the rest that we need to be able to do that. So it's becoming much more of a regular business, but there are still tax problems Michigan has not made taxation as bad as other states have, which is good for the customers. And Michigan will still get plenty of tax revenue, but there are still federal tax statutes. And I expect that they'll change over the next year or so. Okay. And that will be wonderful. We see it happening with CBD. Um, that is leading the way to, for federal legalization of cannabis compounds. Yes. So I think that will all help. Are you talking about, what is it, IRS tax code 280E? Yes, That's exactly. the one that hamstrings are the cannabis businesses, right? Because it reduces what you can, I believe, deduct or write off as an expense. That's, exact, that's exactly right. And because of that, um, I mean, nobody wants to set up a business where you just pay 70% of your income to federal taxes. Absolutely. That's just stupid. Crippling. Crippling. <laughs> Crippling. And so, uh, so we need to change that. And I know that when that statute was enacted, that wasn't at all what Congress wanted to have. They wanted to, they put that in, in order to be able to get money out of drug runners. And okay, I think most everybody else can say, yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. If you can catch them and get their money, that's great. But now we have legitimate businesses. Times have changed, and the tax code should change. Yes, yes. So for people that are less familiar with the industry, what makes it so expensive to get into? First off, just think of what your driver's license costs you. I don't know, 30 bucks, something like that. The basic cannabis license for any one of these businesses is $66,000 when they let you get it. It costs you $5,000 just to apply for it. And then every one of the cities that 
you're in, they want one to $5,000. So you've spent $75,000 and you haven't even opened the door. Then to fill out the application is very tricky. Thankfully, I'm a regulatory lawyer and I know how to fill out applications and it wasn't tough. But I needed to bring aboard a team of seven people to help me fill out that application for Michigan. So a lot of companies spend something on the order of about $100,000 just to fill out these applications. And then you have to find a building, buy it or rent it, and then wait for seven months to find out if you got a license. So in very, very real simple ways, the costs mount up so quickly and then once you get the license now you've got to go buy small plants or seeds now you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on lights on everything else that you need to have in there and do all of this while you can't have credit cards you can't have banking and you have to hire people and pay them in cash with money that you haven't made yet no sales and you have no sales yet so that's part of why it's so expensive. Yes. Was it a challenge for you initially when you had the license processor to get flour or what you needed um, to produce your product? Yes, it was. And we were lucky that we had built up a network of really wonderful caregivers who really cared. And we decided at the beginning, I and the few people who are my financial advisors said that we really needed to play this for the long run and to be able to treat everyone fairly. And that's frankly unusual to hear from real financial advisors. And we have done that by being fair with everyone, both on the price we charge and on what we pay for the flour to come in the door to while we test it to make sure that it was good. We were, and the state licensing authority allowed us to do that as we were able to get our own crop to be able to stand up and learn how to grow it ourselves indoors, which was frankly pretty tricky to, yes. to do. Uh, growing 5,000 plants is very different than growing 12. Yes, I can imagine. That's one of the biggest question marks in my mind is can we grow at scale? Yes. And what are the challenges with that? I imagine there are many. There, there are so many. Thankfully, it was because I came from a pharmaceutical medical device processing background. And even when I worked in consumer products, we made products like ragu spaghetti sauce. And everybody may think that somebody's just stirring sauce, but these are really huge kettles and the production line runs at 1,000 bottles per minute. Wow. You can't even see the bottles be filled. Oh, this is real, real engineering to be able to do that. So we applied that kind of process engineering to how would we grow plants Plants are living creatures, and you have to treat them appropriately and give them the light and the water and the nutrients that they want and the space to grow. I know it may sound really trippy to say we want to have happy plants, but you really do. 
You, Absolutely. You just really do. I know people that play music to their plants, right? Talk talk pretty to them. Absolutely. I grow plants here all over all over the house, and there are some rooms in which I have classical music and others have rock, and it depends on the plant to see which they like. <laughs> you figure out the plant's personality or preference. Well, the plants don't get to walk from room to room, <laughs> but I can see how they're doing, and I get to carry them. So do you play classical music in your facility, your grow facility? Well, we did for a while, and then it turned out that it was putting all the growers to sleep. So we had to stop. And they needed uh, really something more to keep them moving, something with a real beat. I love that. So how can or how do you think medical cannabis can help solve the ex the expense that people are experiencing currently with prescription drugs and having to make you know very real choices we hear of people not being able to buy their insulin and passing away yes. right or, or people not repairing cars and you know foregoing buying food to get their medicine right the way that we go about doing it is by formulating and making safe simple cannabis products where anybody can walk into a store and it's labeled to say this will help you go to sleep or this helps reduce anxiety or this relieves pain just like you do when you walk into a drugstore mm -hmm. to be able to do that and the price of over-the-counter medications in a drugstore are so much less than prescription medications that we can do exactly the same thing with cannabis to be able to do that, but still deliver much, much more stronger medication with modern formulation than these old medications that are 45, 50 years old that are in drugstores. So by giving new molecules that really come out of this centuries-old plant to people in cost-effective ways that where they can just read the label and figure out what to do, and they don't need a physician to be able to prescribe it. And I think that is part of what's so revolutionary here. New medicines generally come from drug companies who talk to doctors. And then doctors let patients look at this advertised on television to people where they see people running through a field being happy or sitting in a bathtub at a spa or something. And then they give them the medication and insurance pays for it. But by making it a consumer product, people can drive down the price of products and it reintroduces market economics to it. And that's the way, to, I think, to help sort of right the ship of this pharmacoeconomic problem. That's really interesting. I think that's an interesting perspective that you're kind of taking the doctors out of the equation a little bit. Um, it's, it's actually taking the insurance companies out of the equation. That's right. The doctors can come along and help learn about it. They, they've unfortunately been shortchanged in their medical education. Nobody taught them about the endocannabinoid system. It's as if someone didn't tell them about the respiratory system and they wondered, you know, what the lungs do in people. Right. 
how could they go through medical school? Well, it just wasn't taught because it was illegal and science wouldn't allow it. But now they're having to play catch up like everyone else, and we're happy to help inform them. But at the same time, the product's so safe that people are able to pretty much figure out what to take and how much to take and not be harmed in the process. Yeah, it's putting control back in the patient's hands a little bit too, it sounds like. Yes, and I'll just introduce something. We just introduced a product called Parachute. Oh, interesting name. Yes, thank you. That is, sometimes people eat edibles and they take about an hour to take effect. And so somebody eats one little chocolate square. No one can eat one chocolate square. I'm proof of that here. (laughs) And then they get too stoned. Mm -hmm. And now they're an hour, an hour and a half into it, and they're paranoid and upset and sweating and a little crazed and not knowing. So CBD is terrific at bringing people down when you're too high. So we took our pure CBD product and put a label on it called Parachute because when you're too high, you need a parachute mm-hmm. to get down safely. And while it's cute and this and the tablets are flying off the shelves in the store for people to have, it's a good example of how the cannabis industry can self-police itself, where one part of our products, edibles, sometimes get people too high. You can use one of our other products to resolve that. And in the process, people learn, gee, I don't want to do that anymore. I'll have to take a different chocolate bar or something like that. And I think that's an excellent example of, of industry self-correcting. Yes. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I love the name of it. I have known that CBD can kind of counteract some of those effects of THC, so. Oh, it really works. That's excellent. And because our tablets are so fast acting, they work in about seven or eight minutes, as opposed to an edible that takes an hour. Right. So yeah, a person may be really stoned after an hour and a half and way too high, but our tablets work in seven or eight minutes, and that's terrific. Yeah, it's immediate relief there, yes. right? And yes. So, and that's going to help, I think, those people that are newer to cannabis to not become scared by it because of an experience like that. Exactly. Uh, exactly. I suggest everyone have this in their purse or pocketbook. I mean, shoot, you could just take that, right? You could take that for anything because it's just CBD. So if it's you just CBD. to it's... feel more calm, you had a little bit of anxiety, I, you know, yes, it's, some pain. It really is, and we've run clinical trials, it really reduces pain very, very dramatically. It's an anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So for all of the inflammatory for itching or for anything else like that, CBD actually relieves inflammation. It's a terrific... Oh, I'm a firm terrific compound, and the cannabis plant makes it for us. I'm a firm believer in it. It's become a part of my daily kind of like vitamin supplement routine now, just because I'm such a firm believer in it. Great. Um, just how long do you think it's going to take before the medical field and doctors are learning about the endocannabinoid system? Well, cannabis it, plant. It's a process that's going on right now. For example, our medical director, Deb Kimless, um, uh, she's been a practicing anesthesiologist for 25 years. 
Um, so she's a very firm, staunch believer in modern medicine in every way. And she began teaching herself about cannabis medicine six, seven years ago, has traveled through Israel and Europe and all sorts of places. That's why we brought her on board as our medical director. She's run a number of clinical trials. We're going to FDA together next week um, to testify about the safety and efficacy of cannabis. So she runs medical lectures every month and usually has 100 to 150 physicians every month. And there are other cannabis doctors who are now spreading those words in every state. So there are now continuing uh, medical education credits available to doctors for them to learn wow. about the endocannabinoid system. I didn't realize that. That is great. Yeah, so it really is great. It is becoming a staunch part of continuing medical education that doctors need to take in order to keep their medical license. And so it's going to continue to work that way. The interesting part is that physicians do not actually prescribe cannabis, and that is a real change for them. Their patients can talk about it with them, but they can't, in, mo in nearly all the states, actually write a script for it. So it, ha it has to change behavior. And changing behavior is tough to do. Yes, yes. Especially with professionals who are used to licensing and how they go about doing it. Um, but I think it will continue to, to work out. And if there are any physicians listening to us, call us. We're happy to talk with you. Yes, please do. What a good community approach to spreading information and creating education and awareness, right, around the ECS system, all that. Um, do you think doctors will ever be able to prescribe cannabis? Will there be a future where that's possible? Well, yes. That is for the higher potency cannabis drugs, the ones that, for example, we're going to go to FDA next week in order to put our high-potency drugs through clinical trials to get people off of opioids. So those will be very high-potency. We think that that should come uh, from a physician who's able to evaluate a patient, just like my drug 45 years ago, methadone. Yeah, it got people off of heroin, but it's given to people by physicians who then manage and monitor the patient. So there are lots of formulations where physicians will have to prescribe them, but there are other less potent formulations that people are just able to take themselves and manage. Yeah, the concentration in vape cartridges may be very high, uh, much higher than ever before, but people have learned to just take one puff. That's all, right. and that's enough and uh, people are pretty good at self-managing themselves. Right, so once we get to the point of maybe doctors being able to offer prescriptions for the more potent products, is that an opportunity for insurance companies to get involved again to create these high prices? Um, yes, and we're going to have to face that one way or the other. Right. The truth of it is these clinical trials that I run I have, I have drained my retirement bank account. 
and they're really expensive. They really are. They are tens and tens of millions of dollars to do this kind of testing. And there are a small army of scientists who work on these projects. And like anything else, they need to get paid. And it just costs that much to be able to do it. I'm not sure how we'll engage in dealing with those prices, but we've solved most of the other problems to get us to this point. So I'm looking forward to solving those two. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, right? And there could be a future where we're not beholden to these private uh, insurance companies or we have other options. I don't know if a Medicare for all, if you want it, option would help address some of this. The cost issues, right, and insurance kind of getting in the middle and affecting the end consumer. Right, and I, I'm unable not. to, uh, right, I'm unable to form an opinion as to whether that's right. But I know that buddies of mine who went to war and came home are entitled to good medical care and our American society has decided that they're entitled to go on getting that through the VA. Yes. And that's great. I just want the VA to have the best possible medications and equipment to treat these people who have served honorably and still serve. And beyond that, our first responders, policemen and ambulance drivers and firemen suffer from tremendous trauma from their jobs. And there is a huge, every time a policeman commits suicide, my heart breaks mm -hmm. again because of what their life led them to do. I want them to be able to have the best possible medication for them and for their families. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the clinical tests that you're currently performing and what you're hoping to learn through those? Yeah, we have some really exciting ones. For example, for people who have type 2 diabetes, they often have pain. So we have developed tablets for people who have type 2 diabetes to relieve their pain. And we're setting up that clinical trial right now, right here in Michigan. Um, we've developed tablets for women who have difficult and painful menstrual cycles. It is a terrible condition to have. And so we've formulated very easy to use, fast dissolving tablets. And we are running a clinical trial right now on women here in Michigan wow. to be able to do that. And there are hands popping up all across the state of Michigan to say, yes, I have this difficulty. I'll take those tablets for a month or two and we'll run a clinical trial and demonstrate that they actually work. And then we'll sell them at reasonable, sensible prices to, for, those, for all those people. And not only will the women be happier, but certainly the guys in their lives and <laughs> children in their lives, everyone's life gets better out of this. And I'm not charging you guys for this either. <laughs> Cost effective for the whole family. For the whole family. <laughs> Even the guys get a benefit. So can you walk us through what the FDA kind of looks for in these clinical tests and what, they, what they're hoping to see if they're going to say, this is FDA approved. Yes. Yes. Go to market. So it's really, while there's 
a thousand complicated things. It's really just two simple ideas. FDA looks to see, is there enough information that the product is safe? Usually that starts with testing in animals to see what's a safe level. I don't think we'll need to do that with FDA for cannabis because it's been used for hundreds, thousands of years. So they first look to say, is there information that shows that it's safe? And there is plenty of information out there to show that. And then the next thing is, is it effective? That is, how much THC or CBD in what concentrations is necessary to relieve normal pain? How much is necessary to relieve pain after surgery? Because those are different kinds of pain and probably a different ratio is necessary. So it's, is it safe and is it effective? And then that's the, the two, two ideas that have to be measured. And then the only question is, how many patients do we have to test this in? Is it 100, is it 500, or is it 1,000? That's where all the money goes. Okay. And that's something that you're going to be responsible for, or does the FDA help at all with any of this, or are they just the receiver of the results? FDA is just the receiver of the results, the sponsor, that's what I get to be called okay. here. The person who runs those clinical trials pays for everything. In a sense, the good news is FDA does not care what it costs. That's also the bad news. FDA doesn't care what it costs. And so they, so it's always an even playing field between my little company that just started a year and a half ago and large drug companies that have been around for a hundred years. I have to, I have to pay the same amounts of money to, to test it in hospitals and clinics as any other drug company does. So FDA is nice and honest. You can't tell them what it costs. They don't want to know. Do you think the drug companies, the big drug companies, will get involved? Or yeah. they likely already are getting involved? They are involved. Okay. They already are involved. They're very worried about how cannabis will literally cannibalize the sales of many of their products, sleep aid, pain relief products, and so on. But they also know, for example, that cannabis can help them, not just by selling the products, but there are many companies that sell uh, cancer compounds that really fight cancer. And the trouble is as a person starts to, to fade as they get sicker and it's, they get nauseous from chemotherapy, they're unable to take as much medication as, as they should. So cannabis can reduce that nausea. It increases appetite. It keeps the patient alive and going. So in a very economic sense, the drug company makes more money. They're able to sell more chemotherapy. But the patient actually can get further along towards, towards a cure. And that's a good deal for everybody. That's a really good point. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. So is there any, I guess, exciting applications you're seeing with the plant in 
and sort of everything that you've been doing with Pure Green and, and yes. now dealing with FDA. I mean, you also have a background, right, um, as sort of a, a healthcare regulatory professional. So you've been mired in this space for some time. I've been shocked to see that people can take our simple tablets and relieve the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Wow. To see people who have multiple sclerosis relieve their own symptoms, I never thought I would see that happen. It's just shocking to me. But it, I've seen it in front of me. People call up and say, my husband, my wife, is getting better. They've had Alzheimer's for 10 years. Their hands are no longer shaking. They're able to eat. They're talking and walking and caring for themselves. It's just truly brings tears to my eyes. And so that is just beyond anything. I wouldn't have believed it. I knew we would cure PTSD. I've seen that. I've seen cops come in and say, look, I've been against marijuana for 35 years, but I've found when I take some of these tablets, I just, I'm not as freaked out. Mm -hmm. I still have to watch myself every moment in my car, in the street, but I'm okay at night. My wife is able to sleep better. I'm not shouting at the kids. This is actually changing the lives of people we care about every moment. And I really didn't think that I would be helping first responders so much. People we really rely on in emergency situations to, to act and act clear-headed. And that's what often these first responders have told me is my head is clear. I'm able to focus and not be so freaked out by emotions that I have to stuff them down. That's so incredible. that's just a couple of, couple of ways. And there, I'm sure there's more to come. We've only had the doors open. We've only sold 600,000 tablets so far. So we're going to sell a lot more. And, but to be able to help people with these chronic diseases is just great. Because one day, everyone listening to this We'll be older, and you will need it. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. I had no idea about the Alzheimer's. That is just amazing. Yes. I can't imagine the relief that those families feel, because it's like you're losing someone right in front of you, and the yes. pain of it just has to be. It's unimaginable to me. Even personally, if I had Alzheimer's, I can't imagine, because I'm sure there's a point when you're aware that this is happening to you, and that has to be very yes. depressing. Yes, and uh, people slip in and out of it, but for the loved ones and the caregivers around them, yes. this is so hard for them to see happen and to actually see a woman who said, my husband has come back to me. Look, he's standing. He can eat a sandwich. Oh, my God. And she had been feeding him by hand for four years. Now, it sounds simple, but... It's quality of life. And that's what's so fascinating is this plant that's been illegal for 70 years that hundreds of thousands of people are rotting in prisons and jails. 
we are now able to utilize. So there's, there's a little plug for social equity, folks. Absolutely. That needs to be a much more prominent part of the industry. Kind of how you talked about with like the high barriers to entry, right? It makes it very difficult for those people that have been most affected by prohibition to even participate. Yes, it and does. And that is just terrible. It is. Just, just terrible because they, they are, weren't doing anything different than what we were. Yes, they knew it was illegal at the time, but I'll bet every person listening to this has gone 70 miles an hour in a 55 zone or more, and so everybody here are lawbreakers. Absolutely. I might have done that on the ride here. So, <laughs> yes. 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 I mean, Michigan, you can see that Michigan's trying to address the social equity. I think, I don't know, what I'm noticing with Michigan and with other states is they push the responsibility down to the townships or the local municipality, which I think is, it doesn't set the whole entire program up for success because those local governments are already so hamstrung with resources and knowledge and things of that nature. And so to say, you guys go figure out how to, you know, um, you know, enable social equity in the application process and things like that. I think every company involved, every part of this, every government official has to take on a sense of personal responsibility. We have a social equity program within our company. And it's, we really do. We really believe in it. And it, we, we have several points to it that of what we're able to do. So it starts with who can we hire? So we hire people based on finding the best person, regardless of whether it's a man or a woman, what their color of their skin is, or what country they came from. Yes, we have to check them for having had uh, police arrests, but we try to go to bat for them every time in order to hire the best person. And so that's important, social equity right where we live. And then we look at it and say, for social equity, parts of giving out product to people, we sell it at what we think are very reasonable and sensible prices so that people can get medication because that's the part of the business that, that we're in. Right, right. It's helping to create access, right? So, yes, absolutely. Well, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's important. I don't know if everyone has that ethos in their business. Well, I don't know if they do, but we do. And, and that's all that's, that matters, right? That helps you sleep at night and feel good about what you're doing. Yes, yes, because I'm able to take my own tablets. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, pure sleep? Pure sleep. There you go. That's exactly the name <laughs> of it. That's wonderful. So I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm not sure if there's anything I didn't ask you today that you were hoping to touch on or something we wanted to dig a little deeper into. I think that we have covered so much. I hope that I've been clear and straightforward enough to be able to answer questions for people there. I know I tell stories that go on too long, but I've tried to give you something directly from my heart and my head as to what's helpful uh, for people and what we're able to do for them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed getting to know you and more about your story. And so I'm excited for Pure Green. I think it's a great product here on the Michigan market. Do you think eventually you'll be in other states? Oh, absolutely. Okay. 
Oh, abs- absolutely. We're um, we're going to Berlin in three weeks uh, to begin to organize selling on an international basis. That's exciting. And so this is spreading way beyond just uh, the states of America. Um, this is very, very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing a lot of exciting things. Well, thank you. When do you think the feds will legalize? Well, look, they essentially just legalized CBD. They did with that farm bill, right? With that farm bill. And now, yeah, there's a couple little things that still need to be dealt with. But um, Senator Mitch McConnell is going to see that CBD is available in every nook and cranny uh, to help his farmers. Mainly sourced from Kentucky. That's right. (laughs) And good old Mitch is going to do that. And then the next thing is, uh, he was just asked last week, what about regular cannabis? And he said, well, I'm not yet ready to get on board that bandwagon. But I'm pretty sure there's farmers in his state who know how to grow the female plant in order to get THC out of it. And they're going to talk to Mitch about letting the women plants grow also. Yes, I think it'll happen eventually. I say one or two years as well. Yes. We'll see. I hope they at least address the banking issue, like allowing you know federally insured banks to service the industry and things of that nature. Right. It's, it's just silly. When we started, we had piles and piles of cash. Which isn't safe. Everyone's walking around with guns, and it's just terrible. It's just insane. Yeah. And now we're able to have sane and sensible banking to be able to... You know, frankly, just move the cash. We know where it came from. People bought cannabis and they used credit cards to do it. So it came from Visa and MasterCard. Right. Yes. Right. That's, that's been happening. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for taking Thank the you. time. I appreciate so. all that you're doing here. Thank you. Thanks. Maybe we can have a follow-up conversation in a year or two, see where you're at. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be great. I would love that. Well, there you have it. Another exciting episode of the Cannabis Curious Podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, please like, comment, subscribe, give any feedback um, you can on whatever platform you're consuming this podcast on. I'd greatly appreciate it. I will be keeping up with Stephen and Pierre Green's journey, and hopefully we can get him back on the Cannabis Curious Podcast for another episode in the future. I hope you all have a wonderful day, and thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.